You're listening to Of Slights and Men with Benji and Jacob. A Daily Magician Production. Hello and welcome back to Of Slights and Men. Uh, we're very excited to have a, a special guest on today. Uh, his name is David Regal, and I'm sure you've heard of him. And I, I think, Benji, you're going to give him a quick introduction before we get started, right? Yeah, um, although I can't claim credit for this. Somebody else wrote it, but it, it does a good job, so I'm, I'm just going to read from it. Um, and, and many of you will already know who David Regal is, and this will be sort of redundant. But for those of you, those uh, small segment of you who don't know who David Regal is, uh, let me let me read you this. David Regal is uh, behind magic, seen by millions of people around the globe. Uh, he's the head writer and co-executive producer of TV's uh, TV, The Carbonaro Effect, where over the course of six years, he created and collaborated on literally hundreds of original effects. Um, no no easy feat, that, that's, that's uh, <laughs> crazy. He has written for and designed effects for stage performers who perform internationally in the Vegas showrooms on Broadway stages. Uh, television writing credits range from uh, Rugrats to sitcoms. Uh, Everybody Loves Raymond is, is one of such. Uh, is responsible for some of the best-selling tricks and instructional magic books of his generation. Uh, Approach of Magic and Interpreter Magic are, are two of those that we might get into. Uh, great books. In addition, he's the recipient of the Creative Fellowship awarded by the Academy of Magical Arts, uh, the parent organization of the world-famous Magic Castle. So, no, no pressure, David. Um, but where where did this all come from? Where, where did well, it begin? Question. I can't believe how much I love myself. Oh my God, that introduction. <laughs> you said you were excited. This is you excited, Jacob, really? That that was the sound of Jacob excited. <laughs> Maybe we should re-record. Uh, we're very excited to welcome David Regal to the podcast. <laughs> Absolutely thrilled. Uh, is that better, David, or is that... You know, that was you feigning enormous excitement, and it wasn't that good. But it's You're all right. right. It's all right. You're right. You're right. I can get over it. Thank you. I appreciate that. It's it's the Britishness. I, th- I think it's like w- whether we're excited or or sad. It just kind of, at least for me and Benji, it just kind of comes out in the same tone, which is helpful at times. But for yeah. things like this, yeah, we probably we not probably the best. wouldn't get casted for any of your TV shows just because the audience would have a very hard time of it. <laughs> very bland. Welcome to the Contemplatives, the craziest <laughs> family you've ever seen. <laughs> exactly. All right. Well, David, cliche, cliche question. Um, but like, like Ben just said, where, where did it all start? Uh, where did this, where did this journey begin? What was your inspiration? You know, did you, did you pick up a magic book when you were younger? Was it a magic, magic journey? journey? The magic journey actually, uh, it's very typical. Uh, I had a friend, I grew up in the Boston area, Newton, Mass. I had a friend, Jerry Sibley, whose dad I think was fairly well to do. He was a doctor and would go to New York now and then and stop at Tannen's Magic, which is, you know, was anyhow uh, the big Mm -hmm. magic company in New York and still is the big magic company in New York. But I'm talking about back then when I was a kid, I'm talking a tweener. Uh, So Jerry Sibley would get these props from his dad. And I remember vividly 
one of those tricks was forgetful Freddy, and I think it cost $25, which seemed like Ooh. an insane amount of money. And Jerry had a P&L, a peering wand, which, you know, fools nobody. I mean, it goes, look, I have nothing. Shkunk! And now you have a wand. But I remember these tricks, and uh, someone had taught him out of this world, so he knew that, which is not a prop trick. And so Jerry was, you know... You know, regaling me with these tricks that his dad would bring back from New York. And I couldn't believe there was such a thing as a magic shop. I mean, what, there's a store that sells magic? And Jerry had an extra catalog, because at that time, uh, Tannen's Magic would change the catalog annually. So he gave me the one year out of date Tannen's catalog. And even now, even today, those catalogs are impressive because they're not soft cover. These are thick, hard-covered books. They look like Bibles. And I took that book home, and it became like my bedtime, you know, illicit reading for a 12-year-old. I'd be there, you know, with the covers over my head and a flashlight. <laughs> Looking at it. <laughs> I'm glad, I'm glad that's what you were doing, David. <laughs> Thank you for that. Now I'll go into liquid magic. Now I'll read fire magic. You know, everything in these categories. And the, the true story that I tell all the time is when you're that age and you, you stumble on a magic catalog, it's just becomes part of your DNA, the descriptions of these tricks. And I remember making a list on a piece of paper of all the tricks maybe I'd buy if I had enough money or saved enough money or got enough uh, cash from, I don't know, a birthday or something. Mm. And so, you know, this dog-eared piece of paper with my little 12-year-old scrawl and all the tricks that I would get. And that's, you know, the catalog itself is a wonderful memory. Making that list mm. is a wonderful memory. And then uh, <laughs> editing that list. You know, well, here's the stuff I really might be able to afford is a great memory. Saving up the money to buy things is a great mm -hmm. memory. Sending off that order to lieutenants, fantastic memory. Waiting the weeks. Remember, it was weeks back then mm -hmm. for that stuff to arrive. Fantastic memory. The day that package arrives from lieutenants, unbelievable memory. Then opening up that box, one of the worst memories you will ever have in the history of magic. Everything is great right up to opening mm. that freaking box where you go, what? It's, it's, it's an elastic band? What? It's a safety pin? What? It's a piece of fishing line? Uh, because when you're that age, you're not prepared for the dichotomy mm -hmm. that, that exists between method and effect. Mm -hmm. And of course, to stop reminiscing, that's still a huge dichotomy in magic and something even some professional magicians can't get past, uh, which is why you have all these, you know, crazy methods being sold. And they sell very well because people love that sense of armor you have when you're behind this crazy involved method, often a mechanical method or an electronic method or some crazy high-tech method. People love it. They love that sense of security. So anyhow, that was my way in at a very young age because Sherry Sibley was my friend in elementary school. Oh, and wow. 
from there, yeah, I discovered Boston had many magic shops. And I'd take the subway downtown. We called it the trolley. And you'd go into these joke stores that had these quite impressive magic counters with really nice uh, quality props from the usual suspect, rice silks and uh, Milsonworth, you know, uh, apparatus. Uh, and of course, Morrissey Magic supplied a lot of these shops. So you had very good apparatus. And it was in the back of these joke stores. And I'd go there and start getting involved with that. And within a couple of years, you know, I'm doing kid shows because yeah. even though I might be, you know, 14 years old, there seemed to be a limitless number of four-year-olds in the David Regal family tree um, on my mom's side, mm -hmm. just this family that just kept producing four-year-olds. And I just did every birthday party, every single birthday party, which of course fed my, uh, my ability to acquire more props, which for kids magic, you did kind of need. And uh, that's how I got in. And I got very lucky because I, met people that did sleight of hand. And so I had some of that coming in and I had a neighbor that my dad knew about that was an amateur magician who loaned me books. I went over there to say hi. And, uh, you know, I was a diminutive, enthusiastic kid. And he said, here's some books. And when I say I got lucky, oh my God, the books were like one or two volumes of Tarbell, not in numerical order, like was oh, one a uh, sax sleight of hand, uh, Al Baker's Ways and Means, one of the greatest books ever written in magic, and uh, probably another couple. And I did not return them promptly. I kept those books. And eventually, by the time I returned them, I was in college. And I meekly went back to this man's house. And I said, I, I'm so sorry. I said, oh, no problem at all. And I returned the books to him. And then I re repurchase them. They're just really great books. And in particular, Al Baker's is uh, my magic hero. Maybe one of the reasons is I had his book at, at a very young age. I mean, just one of his many books, but that is a good one. And what's fascinating about that book in particular, which as you can imagine, I read and reread and reread. When you're a kid and you read that book, it's it's funny, some of the tricks you go, oh, wow, I can make this right now out of cardboard. I'll go to my dad's you know, shirt drawer. That's where you got pieces of cardboard because he had his shirts uh, dry cleaned and they had pieces of cardboard in the middle. And so some tricks are like, I can do that right now. And other tricks, you'll just go, oh, this is probably a joke. This isn't something you'd actually do. This isn't really possible. And a couple of things fit that, whether it was a slight like a pass where you think this can't possibly be done deceptively or a trick, the Saturday evening post feat, I believe is in that book. And you read the method of that trick, which is basically not to spoil things, memorize the Saturday evening post. And you go, that's not a method. What? That's not a method. Uh, <laughs> but then flash forward years later, I'm a young man and I'm performing at the Magic Castle. Fantastic method and with subtleties and really uh, brilliant, brilliant uh, construction. And when I say memorize a Saturday evening post, that's oversimplifying it. It's actually easier than that. 
it's like memorizing certain parts and here's what you do and here's how you memorize it and it all works really well and it took me decades to grow into that part of that book uh, so yeah I got very lucky because I met people I had cousins that did some sleight of hand not that they taught me but I'd see them at a family event doing real sleight of hand whether it was you know a back palm production or it's crazy what you remember I was a kid watching these older cousins of mine that just allowed me to be in the room because I guess they'd get in trouble if they kicked me out because I was just a pipsqueak. Yeah. <laughs> and they were doing this, what seemed to me an, an involved move with the human hand and cards and they were having trouble and they were working on it. And years later, years later, I said to myself, oh, they were doing the curry turnover change. <laughs> Uh, because I remembered it that vividly and, uh, which isn't necessarily an easy trick to do or an easy move to do rather. And particularly if you want to be deceptive about it, but boy, you remember the hand placement. So, uh, yeah, I got super lucky in that regard. And then I started immediately trying to, you know, come up with my own stuff, not out of need, more out of affection because I didn't realize it then. In fact, I've only realized it recently. Uh, oh, what I seem to like is the process more than, more than anything. Not that I dislike performing. I enjoy performing, but what I really like is the process. And it's good for some things, bad for other things, but that's uh, what I'm drawn to, putting together these, these pieces as best I can and having them succeed or fail and, uh, you know, I can't explain why that is. Yeah, but there. Well, I spent twelve minutes answering your question. Oh, it's interesting because you've you've sort of um, come full circle now, where you're you're a creator, and you were talking earlier about how much you loved consuming magic, and how much different, how much does that in influence the way you create magic now, knowing so well the experience of people on the receiving end, because you create a lot of the original effects and products and books, and and obviously some of them uh, get marketed in. Really, because you know the the way it is with magic, the effects, like you're saying, the methods can can be all over the place, but effects are going to sound quite similar when they're marketed. So, how do you let that influence the way you uh, go about cr creating the the construction and then putting them out there when you know that there's going to be a kid out there receiving it the same way that you were receiving it when you were younger? Well, you know, I don't think a kid's always the person receiving it because different things seem. Uh, more appropriate for different age groups right. and or at least having stuff a childlike like attitude as you're weighing. Well, uh, it's all effect. And I think, you know, on this subject, we all share something in common. Very often we'll look at an effect that's out there and we have the experience of, gee, I like everything but this part. It's a very common thing. You know, this is great until you hit mm -hmm. this part. And then something's bad about it. Maybe there's a move where in, in a perfect world, the move wouldn't happen at that moment. Maybe it's a move, which is kind of a crappy move. And you go, wow, is there a better move? Maybe uh, you end up replacing that move with a gimmick. And very often you'll end up replacing a gimmick with a move or a uh, element of construction or structure that uh, removes the need or the necessity for the, uh, the move and it's interesting it's forever interesting because what produces the best result it's 
there's no rule. Sometimes you need to add a move and you're really getting rid of so much procedure by adding a move. It's crazy not to do a move. Uh, and so I, I look at moves and I look at gimmicks in exactly the same way. They're exactly the same thing. They're just tools that are at our disposal as we go about the business of creating the effect. The effect is everything. And if we get that cloudy in our minds, we do ourselves and the effect a real disservice. And it's not just a disservice, we cripple it. Everything is the effect. And if we're throwing in gimmicks, we don't need gimmicks. We're doing it for some reason that is not the correct reason. Similarly, pardon me, I'm drinking Diet Dr. Pepper. Similarly, if we're throwing in slights where it becomes this, you know, parade of slights where uh, maybe a subtlety uh, would be better because it makes the effect better, then we're doing slights for the wrong reason. So there's right reasons to do things and there's wrong reasons to do things. And that judgment we either uh, possess or develop is what makes us a good or not so good creator of effects and routines. It's not just the ability to make gimmicks. It's not the ability to do slights. At the end of the day, you need to have some uh, you know, familiarity with both those things and ability with both those things. But they become tools and the real, the real magic lies in the ability to at least occasionally have sound judgment. And that sound judgment is what leads to good effects or you know lesser effects. And we've all seen bad magic, so we know it's out there. And we've all seen people with a lot of money that can afford to buy any gimmick do bad magic. Similarly, we've seen very skillful people who uh, do moves very well do bad magic. So once we've seen these things and we know uh, it's possible to have you know, great gimmicks and do bad magic, flights <laughs> and do bad magic, you have to start asking the questions of what does it take to do good magic? And you know, there's not one answer, but the ability uh, to see how one trick is a better trick than another trick uh, is extraordinarily useful. I mean, look at all, I'm sure we all have these magic libraries mm. and going through those books and or videos too now at this point and uh, figuring out which tricks are a cut above that takes a certain skill. And if you're talking about original magic or improvements on existing magic, you're, you're really talking about judgment. And when I do a bad job of it, it's because I had bad judgment. And when I do a good job of it, it's because I had good judgment. In performance, I think you have good days and bad days where you know you might flub a slight, but that's a sort of a separate topic. Uh, when it comes to creating magic, the, the thing you really want to nurture and uh, above all else is that judgment because if you work at a slight, you will learn the slight. If you save up your money, you'll have more money. But judgment isn't something you get by throwing money at it. It's not something you get by practicing a, a physical action. It's, you know, it's that weird space in your brain 
where things grow or they don't. Hmm. I'm, I'm interested because you talk about judgment. Uh, and I think it's, at least in my life, I found that something that's quite difficult to kind of almost substantiate. And it's something that, well, I, at least I find, I find hard personally. And, and, and I wonder um, when it comes to your judgment, um, obviously you have things that you take outside of magic references that, you know, uh, we're going to we'll introduce it for people that don't know. Uh, I think we heard it in the intro anyway, but um, uh, David is also, you know, a, a producer uh, and in the, the TV and movie world. And I'm interested because you talked a lot about effect and having that judgment to know what is a good effect. How much of that would you say comes from your ability to discern also, you know, what works well on TV or what works well in a script or well, I don't people, know if you understand what I'm asking, but if that's I good understand. you know, I think I look at all those things kind of the same way. When you work on a TV uh, series, it's a group effort. It's a room full of writers and yeah, generally one, it's not always this way, but more often than not, one writer will turn in a script on a Monday. that's going to be shot mm -hmm. say, Friday. If you're, you know, you know, multi-camera environment, basically right. things are shot uh, you know, a week after you uh, table that script and it gets read by the cast on Monday and everyone's there with a script on their laps and a pencil. Mm -hmm. And if something gets a big laugh in the room, then you put a check. And if it gets a, a sad silence but wasn't supposed to, you, you mark it in another way. Mm -hmm. And uh, very often, there's no way back. If something doesn't get a laugh that first day, uh, the showrunner might say, oh, have faith, it will on, you know, at the end of the week. But generally, things die pretty quickly. So then you're in a room full of people working on a set of problems. Now, the problem could be very simple. Oh, this joke needs a better joke. But you also have structural problems. The episode won't seem to hang together, and you'll try to figure out why or how can we better motivate this actor or can this we need something, you know, a page X right. that feels like we're going to a commercial. We have to, you know, accelerate the plot or we have to create a moment that doesn't quite exist yet. And so the problems become very uh, clear and finite after that first uh, table read. Uh, we have to do this, we have to do that, we have to cut out that, we have to add that. And everyone's trying to come up with solutions and that's, you know, that's the spirit of the room, trying to come up with solutions. And working on a magic problem isn't really different. I mean, you have a plot that you want to achieve. You can get up to this point. Now you have a problem. How do you solve the problem going from this point to that point? It's, it becomes pretty simple. Uh, not, not the solution, but in identifying the problem. I mean, if you're paying attention to what you're doing and you have an amount of objectivity you can see where things get kind of crappy and you can point yourself to those areas. And you're about to say something? No, it's just, so would you say it's kind of like a, it's almost like just being self-aware and, and like almost like from what I'm getting is kind of like accepting that there's going to be issues and then just working as fast as you can and using like proper judgment to address those and not being too obsessed with kind of like, I don't know, almost that's the thing that's quite difficult because uh, Benji and I both like to write and like I've I, I've written novels before and it's interesting because like you can get very wrapped up in your own story, you know, and, and you like this bit. And, and so would you say like part of that good judgment is basically acceptance that 
anything could be wrong and and willingness to change it and then like kind of learning that over time or well yeah you have to do that in tv comedy i mean they they call it killing your babies because you will find right. a joke <laughs> and uh, you have to let go you just have to let go and you have to prioritize and realize uh, what's really necessary in order to go from a to b to c to d and what's not really necessary and you know uh you talk about work quickly you know that's that's the craft i mean the craft is they wouldn't pay you money if you couldn't work quickly because if scripts don't right. come out the scripts don't turn around and people say oh what if you don't have any ideas that day it's like well you're paid to have ideas i mean right. that's the job so you don't have the latitude in television that you have in movies where things just seem to take forever and, and all that and just everyone reads them it takes weeks and you get notes and uh, i like the accelerated tempo of episodic television and probably because i came out of improv i was with an improv group for many many years in new york and we always worked we did six shows a week we did you know, outside shows we did it was fun. It was a great way to develop bad habits, such as I never want to do the same thing. I never want to do the same thing. And right. so on a sitcom, if you're on the writing staff and you're not the boss, it really is, unless you're the one writing that, that week's script, uh, you deal with it for like a week. I mean, you break this story as a group, and that takes a while. But then it goes away, a script comes back, and then bang, you blast through it in a week or so, and then you're on to something else different set of problems. It's like, okay, we did our best with this tangle of knots. Then here comes the new bump, tangle of knots, different problems for different reasons. And that's fun. I mean, or some people hate it. I loved it. And uh, for whatever reason, I'm wired that way. I just, I love the fact that it's a different set of problems. And I never complain about writing. I complain about other things, but never about the job. Well, a lot of writers complain about writing. That's why I say it. I interrupt this podcast to give a brief shout out to thedailymagician.com. If you haven't already signed up for our daily emails, please head over to thedailymagician.com and sign up now. We promise you won't regret it. Yeah, no, yeah, for sure. It's interesting because, sorry, I know Benji got something to say, but it's interesting because uh, you were talking about kind of like when jokes don't land. And it's interesting because uh, I know that in Friends, when they filmed Friends, they would film the jokes like three times like each of them they'd improvise different things each time and then whichever one hit with the audience the best that's the one that they would use when they produce the show so it's, it's, it's just interesting they talk about that i've recently been been thinking about that it's just have you ever done that with magic like have you ever just like you know like, kind of like I, I'm, I'm sure you have list. like i'm sure you have but if you, you know with different audiences you'd be like okay like I'm going to try this routine, like with this joke here. And I, actually, I don't even know why I'm saying, have you tried that? I guess, <laughs> of course you have, but I mean, as far as like, I do try to figure them out. In other words, I try to come up with a routine that has beats that seem to land. And then I will go back and watch a video of me doing it the next time I'm booked at the castle because I forget the beats. I, I know how the trick works, but it's very important to me to remember where the beats are and you know, you start working on a trick, and sometimes you come up with the beats before you perform it. And that's the part that drives me a little crazy because magicians very often say, oh, you know, you have to work on something until you put it on its feet. You don't really know this. You don't know that. 
Mm. To which I say, well, yeah, of course we want to keep learning and keep staying and listen to the audience and make things better. But I do feel magic can be written. I feel magic can be written the way a song can be written. Doesn't mean that when you start performing the song, you won't go, oh, let's change the arrangement here and let's do this and let's do that. Of course you could do that. But sometimes you write a song and it's right. And I believe magic should be approached uh, that way. Go in with intent and then be right or wrong on that intent. Mm-hmm. Evaluate whether you uh, achieved the intent. If you did not, then you make adjustments. You know, Neil Simon would write a play with intent. And here's, he intends to get a joke here. He intends for this to happen. And then, yes, he'd put it on its feet. And very often things would change, you know, in when it's being tried out and in previews and things would be rewritten. But not always. So I look at it that way. Yes, it's great to learn, but not everyone also has that ability. Uh, it's a unique ability to be able to put something on its feet and then be objective enough, even though you're the performer, to see what's working and what's not working. In comedy, you'd see that all the time, that problem, because some act would get a titter on a joke and they thought it, it killed. And it's like, you wanna say, dude, no, it didn't kill. They got a little reaction, but it wasn't great. So there's a reason some acts uh, uh, are able to improve when they put things on their feet, but that reason is because they're good at being objective and good at analyzing a problem. But not everyone has those skills. And that's why we see sometimes a very nice magic routine with the same shitty moment year after year after year. It's because mm. this person doesn't have uh, you know, the ability to step outside of it and say, oh, this is a real weak moment. Uh, so it's interesting. And I, I do admit I'm a little bit on a soapbox about it, but it's because I come from the world of writing mm-hmm. and it's just such a repeated thing in magic. You don't know until you put it on speed. I say, well, you, you learn when you put it on its feet, but you should go into that, you know, with intent. And that means with a sense of uh, crafting something. And I consider writing the beats, by the way. I don't consider writing the script. Sometimes I'll write a script if it's a talky kind of a trick. My cups and balls, the version I do, I wrote the whole thing out. The whole thing was like, I figured out, it took me like a year to figure out basically what my wrinkle would be. But then I wrote a script. I had no method, but I knew what the trick was. So I had, the script never changed. The script never changed. And I, I figured out a way to do the trick. I've done that with other tricks too, but when things don't have a lot of talking, I do believe they're still written. They're written in that here are the beats of the trick. Here's why the audience is going to be interested because I'm going to get into it this way. Have you ever, has this ever happened to you? Whatever that get into is that gives the audience the rails needed to be interested. I mean, this is, these are just rules from life. If we go up to someone, we go up to them and start talking to them for a reason. And we've organized our thoughts. So the reason comes out in a way that the person is interested. I mean, we do that in life. Uh, honey, uh, I went to the store, but I got you something different. And there's a reason why. And, oh, she's interested. And oh, here's why I'm interested. 
this is how we organize our thoughts in real life. Yet when performing magic, very often magicians, you know, don't believe the rules of life are applicable, but they're super applicable. So when we go into the effect, here's why I'm showing you this thing. Uh, don't you wish when you went to Las Vegas, you ended up with more money instead of less? Well, I do. And, you know, okay, now, now they know why they're listening. My grandfather, he was a magician, and there was one thing he could do that no one else could do. And he taught it to me before he passed away, and I'd like to show you that right now. Oh, now we're interested. This one thing that only one person could do. Yeah, um, you got me with that. I was, I was, my ears yeah, me too. I was like, like, what's it going to be? I was like, is David going to do like a trick over audio right now? <laughs> no, I'm not. I was acting, acting. Um, Better than I was apparently before. So that's but, but it doesn't take much. It takes very little, but most people uh, with poor presentation skills don't even take the step of saying what might make them interested. And it doesn't have to be much. Here's something I do once a year. And if I do it for you guys, I can't do it for another year, but I'm just in the mood. Do you mind? I'm, whoa, I'm interested. It, say anything that is a reason why these people might be interested in watching what you're about to do. Even if it's as little as it took me 10 years to do uh, what I'd like to show you right now. And I'm not saying that to brag. I'm saying that that's all I've got. Uh, but, you know, anything can be something that provokes interest. Uh, so when I say everything is written, I do believe magic is written, even if it's just the beats. I want them to be interested at this point. I want them to be leaning forward at this point. I want them to be a little apprehensive at this point. I want them to be sure it can't possibly happen at this point. And I want their minds to be blown at this point, or I want them laughing at this point. You can go into a presentation of magic with those in, you know, those beats in your mind. And that to me is writing because you you have this idea in your head of what's going to happen, how they're going to feel about it, how they're going to react. And I do write the reactions as part of my writing. Uh, I know that sounds crazy because we are not the audience, but that's how I wrote a lot of the Carbonaro effect, especially the more ornate pieces. I had to write for an actor that we had no control over. Uh, the, the mark, we called the person we we're doing the trick for the mark. Mm. And in some of the more ornate pieces, we needed the mark not only to react a certain way, you know, along like a 25 or 30 minute timeline. You know, these things were longer before they were edited, uh, especially the big pieces. We need them to behave uh, and react emotionally at a certain, in a certain way at a certain moment, but we need them to physically do things at a certain moment in the, in the timeline of the effect. So you end up with this cast actor, the Mark, who, let me be clear, is not an actor. They are a regular person. They don't think they're on TV. They don't think they're seeing magic. They think there, something happen, is happening in the real world in the context of this show. But in my mind as a writer going into some of these longer pieces, I would treat this real person who's completely innocent as if they're an actor and see if, you know, all of us can work as a group to make these moments happen where this person who is not an actor is behaving as if they're scripted. Oh, they're gonna be curious here, doubtful there. 
walk over to here and do this, disagree with Michael there, and then do that. I mean, really create a timeline for the actor who's not an actor, just a regular person who wandered into this, you know, production of you know a crazy magical piece and see if they'll hit all those moments. So yeah, going into magic, you can write for yourself, but you can also write for the audience as if they're playing a role and see if you know those moments of intent can be achieved. There's a there's a lot to deconstruct in that. Um, so I, I kind of wanted to. to well, we all do it. We all do it. Obviously. And, uh, well, here, let's demystify it. Let's demystify it. No one goes into a magic trick as a performer thinking, I hope at the end they're not fooled. No, we all know it's a given. We want them to be fooled. So that that's a very simple way of saying, okay, we all go into a magic with that one intent. That's a given. It's almost a null. It's a given. It's, well, okay. Well, now it's going to be that we're doing sponge bunnies and they're opening their hand. What's our intent? We want them to shriek a little, you know, have that, you know, involuntary reaction. And I think it's easy to say that's another intent in that particular effect that we all share. Now, when you start getting away from the most obvious ones, the ones you almost don't even have to speak of, just by stopping in and looking, you find other intent. And sometimes the intent should be, do we want them bored? Because think of card tricks, Jesus Christ. You get to some of these, quote, self-working card tricks, or, you know, these virtual card tricks that everyone's yeah. doing now. There's so much goddamn procedure. Maybe some audiences can put up with it. I want to kill myself. And my <laughs> wife wants to kill herself. Uh, we watched a couple of all those shows, and it's like she'll look at me and go, "Yeah." <laughs> uh, so anyhow, do we want them bored? We know the answer to that. No, we don't want them bored. So when we start looking at the timeline of our effect, and if we put ourselves in video, just running through it, we can see the timeline in front of us. Oh, look! It's been three and a half minutes. All we've done is make piles of cards, and the. We haven't said anything interesting. Uh, a friend of mine who's a very good magician, uh, he you know, asked me for some feedback of magic. He was doing a particular routine. It wasn't even a card trick, but it was a, a beefy routine. And I had to say to him very nicely, uh, I, you know, I mentioned all the great things he was doing, but I said, unfortunately, you only have a couple of interesting things hmm. that you're saying to the audience. And the first one, doesn't happen for three and a half minutes. And why don't you move some of that to 20 seconds in and let that color, this sort of procedure you have to take care of for a few minutes. And then you can you know, get into the next interesting thing you have to say, because if the audience doesn't have rails, if they don't have something that is giving them a reason to be interested, good luck, man. Because magic by itself is intrinsically interesting to, I guess, a portion of the population, but mm -hmm. not the majority of the population. Mm -hmm. I mean, part of our job is interpreting that magic, that routine, that piece. So it's interesting to everybody. And it has, you know, just like anything we try to be entertained by. 
it has you know peaks and valleys and twists and turns and that's how we judge everything else you know we uh watch in entertainment no one wants to be bored no one's going anywhere saying i hope i'm bored i hope i'm not challenged i hope i never laugh i hope i'm not moved no one does so when we look at the antithesis of that we know what our job is as uh, as anything in the arts you know to reach people in different ways and when we look at the timeline of our performance we can easily uh, see these big big problems if they exist sit by opening our eyes you know, to the timeline and opening our eyes to what what is our intent here because just i want to kill myself when i watch a some some card magician say now it's face up now it's face down now it's blue now it's red it's like jesus christ where I can't out of the room fast enough. <laughs> I'd pay for that footage. I interrupt this podcast to give a brief shout out to thedailymagician.com. If you haven't already signed up for our daily emails, please head over to thedailymagician.com and sign up now. We promise you won't regret it. <laughs> One thing right, I said, um, you have a question? <laughs> no, yeah, it's, it's interesting because you talk a lot about... Um, reason why right and giving people a reason to be interested there's a book um i think i might have cited this before by uh robert uh, chialdini called influence and and they do a, a very interesting study in it where there's a there's a man who wants to print something off of a, of a printer and so he stands in the line he's near the back of the line and uh he, he asks people in front of him hey can can i cut in front of you so that's that's kind of like stage one can i cut in front of you and a lot of people say yes, but, but quite a lot of people also say no. And then he goes, there's a, there's a new sort of study, it's a new line. He's at the back, he says, oh, can I, can I cut in front? Because I've, I've got to print this off, I've got like this deadline, it's, it's really important, like my job's on the line, can I do this? And nearly everyone says yes, you can cut in front of me, because he gave him a reason. But then what's, uh, what's really interesting is that he then did it a third time, where he's at the back of a line. And he says, can I cut in front of you? Because I need to get this printed off. And it's such a nonsensical reason. You know, it's the same reason everybody else there is in that line. Mm-hmm. But just the mere fact that he says the word because and he gives them a reason is enough, right? And and, and a lot, most of the people are very high, very yeah. only marginal difference from, from you, the second you, instance said yes. And, and, and it, it didn't, yeah, like I'm saying, it, didn't, it wasn't even a crazy, like, complicated reason. It was just something that they could hold on to. You brought up one of my favorite words in magic and it applies to so much in the world of sleight of hand and in the world of uh, any kind of routining and structuring of a a piece that you're going to perform that word is reason and the fascinating thing to me and i get into i'm not here to plug my books but in my books interpreting magic and approaching magic i really get down to nuts and bolts you know you know ways to see these things and affect change that aren't difficult. But uh, one of the great, great shortcuts and solutions in magic is a reason. And as I say, the surprising thing is it doesn't have to be a great reason. And this applies to so much. Um, In card magic, if you're into card magic, there's so many unfortunate moments like you're going to do some you know move where 
the packet of four cards has to come over on top of the deck for you to do the move. And in a perfect world, you would not want those four cards to come over on the deck. Well, just giving yourself any kind of a reason makes that moment invisible. It's like erasing it in the mind of the audience. So instead of, oh, here comes an illogical thing where I'm putting these kings, you can have the worst reason possible because there's someone to my right, the deck's in my left hand, I have a spectator to my right, and I'm just going to say something to them and put my right hand on their shoulder, which I, I can't do if I'm holding cards. Mm -hmm. So I don't even look at my hands, but the kings go onto the deck as I, my right hand goes on the shoulder and go, well, that's what I do anyway. <laughs> and I take my kings back, but the move's been done. Something that, you know, seemingly insignificant changes everything. And when you apply that to card moves, oh my God, uh, what can seem like, you know, one unfortunate moment after another, and you know, the moves necessary to, uh, you know, create the effect, they just start to disappear. And when you start doing it, you feel guilty at first, because it feels too easy. But again, not to say this over and over again, we see magicians that are, that are tied up and they don't, uh, they don't have the elegance of a good presentation. And in card magic and all magic, that elegant solution is generally desired. Sometimes we sacrifice elegance for you know, the right stage pic picture and we'll, we'll weigh the benefits of this and that. But generally, we're always you know, striving for that elegance. And mm. those reasons, those reasons, erasing these moments that would otherwise exist you know, in the minds of the uh, spectators is just a phenomenally uh, useful tool. These little reasons where you're going to touch someone on the shoulder or wipe away that speck of dust. You know, a lot of people use that one, that reason. Wipe away the invisible speck of dust on the table. But you'll find if you work with someone on your left and your right, and unless you're working for one person, there will always be someone to your left and your right. The fact those people exist and that you can address them is just the biggest problem solver in the world. Huh. I love that. It's interesting. Yeah. No, go I was ahead. just going to say, I think we might say the same thing, Bench, but... It's, it's kind of something that I was first introduced to actually by reading Pierre Hartling's book where he talks about like performance mode, if, if I'm thinking of the right book, mm -hmm. where he talks about how you're in control of performance mode. And so the audience, you control when they think that you're in performance mode or not, right? They can think. And so I love what you're saying because I think that's actually a really useful tip. And I hope everyone at home that's listening, listen to what, to what David just said because I think that is super important uh, is because we can get sometimes trapped so much in our practiced routines that we forget that we're supposed to be performing them to spectators and that we can and we can use them and, and i love that because there's so much that we can that you can do as a magician while you're not in so-called performance mode like you said you know like i don't know like scraping off the table like you said to get rid of a speck of dust or picking up a speck, you know whatever it might be it's things that you don't think about uh, and that's the point right <laughs> and the audience shouldn't shouldn't think about it either anyway yeah ben Shire, the most amazing uh, experience to take something that for 10 years you've done in a routine and every time you've done it, you've gone, hey, I have to attend to that. <sighs> I have to that. And then you, you erase it 
by just changing the moment. It is, it's like the sun coming out behind a cloud. It's just fantastically effective solution. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Well, one of the words that I heard you use earlier was um, limitations in that some magicians find that they're, they're sort of, uh, they're building a routine, they build themselves into limitations. But I've, I've actually heard you talk about the opposite, which is where sometimes you will start out by giving yourself limitations and that actually kind of increases your creativity. You know, if you, I think the example you might give them was uh, trying to do a castle act without using cards and without using coins or, or using objects that yeah. the audience just put yeah. and, and then you have to figure out something to do it. And so it's funny how it's like almost the opposite in that some people start with this wide open approach and somehow paint themselves into a corner, whereas starting with the limitations actually then engineers the creativity. So if you have any examples of that, I'd, I'd love to hear a couple. Well, I think a lot of people, uh, when I say people, I mean magicians, they use uh, the conditions, which is similar to limitations, as the way to improve magic. And that is a good way to improve magic because we look at a trick and go, boy, it's, it's pretty amazing, but wouldn't it be more amazing if? Hmm. And we very often improve magic by doing that. I did, it's funny you mentioned, I did do a themed act where the host at the Magic Castle would get objects from the audience before I came out and just put them in a pile in the middle of the close-up table. Mm. Then I would come out and do 20 minutes with those objects. But of course, because we're magicians, you know, I can have things they don't know I have, whether it's invisible thread or a thumb tip. I even used a gaffed coffee mug that looked like some previous guest had left on a table over on the side. Uh, and then I did 20 minutes, but uh, it ended with a really fun version of ring flight. And man, I hate even saying this because it was really, I'd never seen anyone else do it, but here's what I did. I'd come out and I'd see all the, uh, props there. And I basically talked to the audience about the magic castle and close up magic. A lot of people, if they've seen magic, it's been on television or on a Vegas stage, but this thing close up magic, which really was what made the magic castle famous when it opened in the sixties, it's kind of its own unique animal. And I take off my jacket and I hang on the back of the chair that was there and I put the chair off to the side I'd roll up my shirt sleeves. And talk about close-up magic was often done in bars or in very close conditions. And I'd get people seated around the, the table with me. And with those rolled up sleeves, I'd be doing 20 minutes with the quarters and the business cards and the, whatever, you know, was in that pile of junk that came out of the audience. And at the end, what was my version of ring flight? I'd borrow a ring. It would disappear. Now, remember, the Magic Cassidy are performing for some magicians, but really lay people too. At least half the audience would be lay people. So I'm talking to both magicians and lay people with this presentation. The ring would vanish. And as you know, with ring flight, it's a beautiful vanish. And I'd say, but don't worry, you'll get your ring back. And I'd never forget to give you your ring back because trust me, driving home today, I'd immediately think of your ring because on my key case, and I'd reach into my pocket, my hand would come out with nothing. And I'd say, in my key case, and I'd reach into another pocket, nothing. And then I'd say, oh, that's right. 
It's in my jacket pocket. But 20 minutes ago, I put my jacket on a chair that's now closer to my spectator on the right than it is to me. And I say, could you reach into the inner jacket pocket? And they would take out the key case. And in that key case would be the vanished ring. So I loved that, you know, condition slash limitation. Mm -hmm. The key case was not in my possession. It was in a jacket, in a chair, you know, that was put over to the side 20 minutes ago. And that's where the ring went. And I did feel that was a really nice enhancement mm -hmm. of yeah. the effect. Uh, the interesting thing about enhancing the effect that way with limitations or conditions, again, I consider those things very similar because very often we'll apply a limitation to make, you know, the conditions of the effect seem more stringent uh, or, or more, what do we, what do we call it, test conditions. Uh, the fascinating thing about trying to improve that way, there's nothing wrong with it. I'm just saying it's the most often uh, approach, often used approach by magicians. Uh, eventually you hit the wall. Let's look at card to pocket. Card to pocket, you know, funny method because it's one of those methods I was talking about, Al Baker's method for the Saturday evening post feed being memorize the, the magazine. The method for card to pocket, the traditional method is put the card in your pocket. <laughs> yes, we're palming it and secretly doing it, but basically the method, basic method is put the card in your pocket. And so as a kid, you that method, you go, that isn't the method. But it is a method, and it's the mm. best method, but you know, you're palming the card. Well, okay, card to pocket, great. Then someone said, you know what? Let's add a limitation slash condition. It'll go into the wallet. Whoa, now you reach in and you pull out a wallet and inside's the card. What's the method? Put the card in the wallet. Very similar method <laughs> to put the card in the pocket. But yeah, I'd say that's better. Then someone comes along and says, mm, no, 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 LaPaul. Let's have it go into an envelope, a sealed envelope. Whoa, okay, make a gimmick. Not as a gimmick, but you're still shoving it into an envelope. And then, of course, someone said, no, no, let's put that envelope into a wallet. So, you know, it went from a pocket to a wallet to a sealed envelope to a sealed envelope that's in a wallet. And all those things, I think, made the trick better. But the question becomes, is it going to keep making the trick better? No, let's have the wallet inside a safe. And they'll have the combination of the safe. We'll open up the safe. And let's have that safe on a boat. So the boat will have to come into the dock <laughs> at some point. It's not going to be better. And so it's interesting. Conditions, limitations, make things better till they don't. Hmm. And then... Uh, Clearly, it stops. And where it stops is where judgment comes in. But conditions and limitations are just one way of making magic better. And again, it's something I get into uh, in the books. But conditions is just one, one area that can be improved. There's other areas that can be improved. And uh, when we see a really nice presentation, like, I love Darren Brown. He's my favorite magician. And I've traveled, you know, across the water to see him, see him perform live. Uh, you know, he he gives the audience a full, full plate. Everything you want in a meal is on that plate. You're laughing. You're interested. You're fooled. And you're intrigued. It's a, 
ample, ample, uh, you know, uh, as I, I call it a play. Mm -hmm. But you see other performers, this, yeah, he did, he did, some performer did the trick. It did end, but it didn't feel like a full serving. Right. So uh, when I love a performer, and I do love Darren Brown, uh, it's generally because, wow, wow. I walked into this room, and I was just filled up. My favorite show I've ever seen, uh, non-magic, was called Elaine Stritch at Liberty a one-woman show by an older woman who was you know part raconteur part actress part singer and she spent the night just talking to the audience but my god you laughed you cried and because partly of her age and the fact that she had a history there was this whole layer added to you know a one-person show because it took on this sort of life force and I, the reason I mention this is because I believe it was recorded. I know it was recorded, but I believe it's available for viewing if you're curious about it. It's, say it again so everyone can hear it. at Liberty. She was an actress known for being taking no bullshit from anybody and had an interesting career, funny stories, and as a force of nature, just a fantastic performer. And so, yeah, I think you'd have a great evening watching it. My favorite show I've ever seen. And very you know simply produced it was just one human being uh, but why did i bring it up like darren brown she gave that audience the full plate wow you left thinking <laughs> i did not get ripped off but uh, and again don't ask me to name a name here but there was a magician uh my, my father i was never close to my father uh, but no one was close to my father. He was not that kind of a guy. And so when I was a young adult, I don't even think my dad knew I was still into magic. We didn't talk. But he called me one day in a fury, saying, Jesus Christ, David, I saw this magician. I took Judy. This, and he was, he was furious, which was not an unusual thing for my father. <laughs> but to be furious about a magician, to such a point where he had to call me to talk about, he was furious because the magician basically, you know, did one of these shows where he phoned it in and did ads talking about how great he was in the middle of the show. And my dad was furious. So it does make a difference. And it's not just performing for other magicians, it's performing uh, as a human being, anything. You can give the audience gifts, or you can make them feel they were just ripped off. Uh, Michael Carbonaro, I have nothing to do with his live magic show, except I've seen it a couple of times. He makes that audience so freaking happy. He's fully present. People feel he's spending time with them. And he takes this room of 2,000 people. He plays to big wow. theaters. And everyone, everyone is happy they were there because there's just the sense of him spending time with this audience. It's a unique skill. I don't pretend uh, to say everyone can do that. He is uniquely uh, skillful in that way and a very different kind of performer than Darren Brown. But everyone, again, felt that sense of, I was given something by this yeah. performer. Sammy Davis Jr. had that. Sammy Davis Jr. would come out at the beginning of his act 
very often in Vegas and say, you know what, guys, I'm going to be doing like, uh, I'm going to be here for a while. A lot of people come out here, they'll do like 25 minutes and call it an act, but I'm a big ham. And I love doing what I do for you people. So I'm going to be doing more than an hour. And so <laughs> I hope you're okay with that. And of course, they just love him, love him because of that sense of receiving a gift. And an audience knows the difference. They know the difference in a performance and the ways you can improve magic. So it doesn't just seem like some guy running through a freaking trick he learned when he was, you know, in his bedroom. There's a lot that can be done. And when you do that stuff, it's not just better for the audience. It's more enjoyable for you as a performer and not just a little more enjoyable, a lot more enjoyable. You know, my pet peeve in magic, which is, you know, my, my books have very similar titles, Approaching Magic and Interpreting Magic, uh, is because it's crazy that more magicians uh, even just magic enthusiasts don't approach magic uh, with the aim to interpret it. Because we look to that in every other performing art. No one, you know, that, what I like to say is no one gets dressed up, says, honey, put on your best, your best outfit. We're going to see a singer that's the same as every other singer. No one's excited about that night. No one in, in sports, no one goes, boy, I can't wait to make the drive to the stadium. I'm going to see a team that's like every other team. No, 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 no. Everything, everything's interpreted. Whether it's dance or singing or acting. Acting. We want to see how this actor interprets this role very often. Uh, we don't go hoping the actor is the same as every other actor we've ever seen. Uh, and so we approach everything else, you know, as as users, you know, as audience members, we're excited about interpretation. And yet in magic, because it's so secret centric, you know, a lot of people in magic think, oh, once I do the, once I execute the trick, I do the secret and everything ends up the way it's supposed to end up, I'm done. No, I mean, the secret is like the singer having the sheet music. The singer doesn't go by the sheet music and say, now I'm a singer or now I'm done. No, they have the tool that they need in order to continue. Magic, uh, the secret of magic is very similar, I think, analogous to that sheet music. We have what we need in order to continue. Without that method, we would not be able to continue. And because we work hard at achieving the ability to do the method, uh, we tend to like to think, I'm done now. But no, no, that's what gives you the ability to continue. Uh, so that's uh, the strange thing about magic that other, th other performing arts do not possess. And that's why I'm, I'm so surprised that uh, in magic, there's not more stress put on, oh, this goes through you. <laughs> this, this thing, this, this method is gonna go through you and you're gonna do it this way, you're gonna do it that way. And when you start putting it through yourself, you end up with little wrinkles that make it a little bit different when you do it. And the enjoyment level doesn't just go up for the audience. It goes up for you as the performer, guaranteed. I really like that. Um, in fact, it's really interesting because I, 
you've touched on something that we like to talk about um, a lot, actually, at The Daily Magician and with everyone that we, we have on, um, which is kind of this, um, like you said, sometimes as, as magicians, we can have this tendency to not look outside of magic, uh, to be very focused within our, our own worlds and within our own secrets. And I love how, I mean, essentially what you've you've talked about from much of this time is what you've learned, right, from stage performance and from writing scripts and obviously, of course, as well from studying magic. Uh, and you've been able to apply that um, so thoroughly to your understanding of magic. And so as a follow-up question to that, I'm interested, um, what, what, what three books, um, and I'm sorry, I'm just like throwing this at you. <laughs> it doesn't have three books or TV shows or whatever. You can choose what you want. But what three books have you read that had nothing, nothing to do with magic, uh, which have most influ influenced your magic? Well, I don't know. I mean, I don't, I don't look at it that way. Like looking back at the things I've read mm -hmm. and, and, and saying, well, how's my magic been influenced? But I will tell you, my favorite author is Dickens. And okay. I like that. He's just a beautiful, uh, beautiful mind when it comes to structuring a story. And I also love, well, The Three Musketeers is not Dickens, it's Dumas, but. Uh, it's a beautiful example of storytelling because you start with this guy, D'Artagnan, gee, he wants to be a musketeer. It's his life's dream. And at the end of the book, he becomes a musketeer. Uh, it sounds ridiculously simple, but that equation is the storytelling equation. <laughs> you know, I have a lack. I'm gonna go through the story with this lack or this need and then it'll be achieved or it won't be achieved. And if all people did with magic was just try to even put in those bookends, most presentations of magic would be improved. Even with just that, here's this lack. Oh, now I've, uh, I, you know, uh, reduced that lack or right. achieve, that, achieve that aim. So anyhow, I do like uh, that feeling of satisfaction you very often get in a well-written story. And by the satisfaction, I don't mean the treacly, and now everyone's holding hands and walking off into the distance. I just, I mean satisfaction. Um, when I do my cups and balls, uh, I start with little cups. I talk about how I had them when I was 12. I put them away. Then I use the metal cups. And when I'm done doing the routine with the metal cups, I say, they're still on the table. And I say, but None of this gives me more pleasure than I had when I was 12 years old with a red cup, a yellow cup, and a blue cup. And I lift those metal cups, and the little plastic cups have come back. And I reach one's another load ball. And that's very satisfying for me and satisfying for the audience. And it's a very tenuous reason they came back. Because even though now I've graduated, in the, in the script I talk about how I graduated to these fancy metal cups. And then I closed the thought by the, at the end of the routine by saying, but it doesn't give me more pleasure than I was a kid. And now what's happening? Now they're imagining me as a kid with these plastic cups. And now here I am as an adult with the metal cups, but I've retained. I mean, all these things are happen without saying them just because they came back and they sense the sincerity, uh, which in this case actually is the truth. Things don't have to be the truth, but in this case, it is the truth. Uh, and so there's a sense of satisfaction. I don't kiss the cups. <laughs> I don't put them in a special frame. I don't put them under a little light. They're just there. 
but there's an element of satisfaction that comes with their reappearance. So I think good magic uh, does surprise, but as, and this has been talked about by many other people too, there's that sense of in, surprise yet inevitability. Inevitability, excuse me. I'm not drinking, I swear. <laughs> Just soda. It's surprising, it's true, the caffeine. It's surprising, yet it feels satisfying in an inevitable kind of way. Um, when things are structured well, boy, the audience feels that that closure or that moment. Sometimes it's just a hanging moment. It doesn't feel like a moment of closure, but that delivered moment at the end of a magic routine, and it's this, it's this you know thing that fills the room. Everyone's feeling it. And everyone looks at each other and realizes, oh my God, we've all just kind of felt it. Those moments are delicious. And so, yeah, I didn't really answer your, your uh, question, but I do believe structure applies to music, applies to storytelling, and applies to magic. You have uh -huh. the wrong structure, you're not going to get the beats you want. You have to have an understanding of structure. I mean, that's why songs, when they break structure, uh, Sometimes they go off the rails. Sometimes they find something even better than the traditional structure. But that understanding of structure is uh, important, even if you're going to break it. Thank you. Uh, I really like that. That's, that's, that's really interesting. And, and I think it, I love how you pulled in the uh, Three Musketeers and just brought, brought that all together for me. Thank you for that. Um, so talking, talking of books and favorite books, I'm sure a lot of our, our listeners ha have yours. Uh, in their library. Um, so we, we wanted to just uh, be remiss uh, before, you know, I think Benji has one, one final question for you, but we'd be remiss for, to, to not talk about uh, your books. And so I'd love to just open up this time to you to, to talk about uh, your books and, and which ones you think people maybe should start with if they haven't read you before or kind of the, the new ones that you, you've been releasing uh, within the past few years or, yeah. Well, um, you know, all the books have different materials. So, uh, I like different things in different books, but approaching magic and interpreting magic go well together. And they both are about injecting yourself into magic. I mean, they're both big books. They have a lot of material. So people want tricks. There's lots of tricks and you know, the tricks I do at the magic castle. So they're not bad tricks. These are good tricks. Uh, but in addition to that, uh, I like to think I talk about in a very conversational and approachable way things that can make magic better, not because the reader's going to end up doing magic more like me, but I'm hopefully giving the reader tools so they can do magic more like themselves. And mm -hmm. if, if I'm successful in that, it's, it's, I think, substantive because when you start doing magic more like yourself, oh my God, the performing becomes a different experience for you as a performer and the magic becomes better for the audience. I mean, I think both of those things are hundred uh, percent true. And if you're just doing magic the exact same way as other people, you can be terrific, but you'll never be better than that other person that does magic exactly that way. You'll be just the same as someone else that does a very good job of matrix or a very good job at some other trick. Uh, you'll, you'll be exactly that interesting exactly that good a performer and that'll be 
the exact reason why cruise ships can pay X for, quote, the magician. Because they're of the mindset that every magician is the same. They'll do the right trick the exact same way. And unfortunately, to a degree, that cruise ship director is right. There are magicians that do the brank trick the exact same way. Uh, so it's good for everybody. <laughs> if people start looking at magicians as, you know, these individual performers that have something unique to themselves that is making the presentation of magic, you know, the Benji, you know, magic show or the Jacob magic show. Uh, it's important uh, for magic, but it's also uh, beneficial for us as performers and beneficial for the audiences. Oh, so yeah, those those two books are good books. They're neither others <laughs> for a, a beginner. It's funny because I think some people look at me as someone that does. Some people say, "Oh, uh, things with a lot of gimmicks, things with a lot of." this, things with all of that. None of that is true. None of that is true. I love manufacturing stuff. The stuff that I manufacture, I have a thing for it. I just love the process. I wonder if I can make this happen and talk to different people that manufacture stuff. I do things, uh, hopefully, whatever's necessary for the task at hand. So in my books, there's a lot of just sleight of hand tricks. But yeah, there's stuff you can make at home on your kitchen table and ruin things that uh, you shouldn't ruin and your wife yells at you. Uh, what's in my mug? What's in there? What's right on this? I'm sorry, that's Plaster Paris. Uh, so yeah, there's like kitchen table make it stuff in my books. There's stuff that's just a deck of cards, you know, in my books. There's stuff you cut out of paper and arts and crafts in my book, my books. There's a lot of everything. And in those two books, there's also a lot of stand-up magic. So if you're doing something at a friend's house or on a stage, there's tricks that fit those categories. So as far as that goes, you know, the, 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 the number of tricks and the kind of tricks, I think there's a lot that can, uh, you know, be used by people who have different interests. But for me, what those books uh, hopefully will do is just be something that uh, people can go to, or go to, uh, to read very, as I say, practical ways of making the magic they do more like, you know, a personal expression or uh, their own twist on something that's, you know, in the magic repertoire. Mm. And, and for anyone listening, I'll probably put a link to those in the uh, description below so you can check them out. Um, yeah, they're, they're amazing. Um, before we close, I have, I have one kind of final question for you, David. Um, and before I do that, maybe I should give a little bit of context. So, over the course of this interview, um, we've already in, in sort of an hour or so got a very good feel for how how much of your kind of career and, and your work is sort of your brain power is put towards solving problems. You know, you, you clearly have a good brain for solving problems, um, whether it's in magic and TV, we talked about in TV nearly every day, it's, it's finding solutions to different problems. So my kind of question is, I'm, I'm really interested, what, what makes you in sort of in the past, today, uh, in the future, what makes you want to work on solving magic problems as opposed to any other kind of problems? Because obviously there's a, 
you know, it's it's no spoiler that there's no shortage of problems in the world and, and you have a good brain for solving problems. So what was it that really drew you to solving magic problems as opposed to any other? And that's not meant to uh, be well, uh, an insult to, to anything. It's just, I'm, I'm really curious as to as to why that, that goes on. Well, let's, let's take off the table. The fact that magic is a bug and a thing and different people have an enthusiasm for it from all walks of life. And it's hard to say exactly why the baker, the butcher, the baker and the candlestick maker also love magic. So maybe I just like it because I like it. But my thing is, uh, I've always wanted to make people happy. And by that, I mean, you know, I, I alluded, I grew up in a home, there was not a lot of happiness, there's a lot of tension and tears, I have older sisters and all this. And I was the youngest. And, you know, it was common, common for me when everyone was weeping to go up the stairs halfway and come back down into the dining room where everyone's upset and no one's talking to each other with some bit or some joke and try to make them laugh. These people, everyone's mad and no one can speak because they're, they're so angry or so sad. And that is a memory of not one moment in my life, of hundreds of moments of my young life. I, as the youngest, decided to be the person who maybe can make these sad people happy. And I realized later in my life, oh, I've never changed. <laughs> I'm exactly that person. In the improv group, trying to make people laugh. And writing sitcoms, trying to make people laugh. And in magic, it's a great conduit for making people happy. Because I don't know if you notice this, people talk about the childlike wonder, the childlike, childlike enjoyment magic brings to people. Well, I think that's literally true. Because I had kids, I still do, but now they're young adults. Mm -hmm. When they're little and you're changing them on the changing table, you know, you can tickle their belly or their feet and they start laughing. They don't have a lot of good reasons to laugh. I mean, they're infants, but they will just laugh. And it's a very open, free, non-intellectual kind of a laugh. And you know, magic can intrigue people intellectually and for some personalities, it does affect them that way. When you see a really good magician, like an Armando Lucero, when I watch him perform at the castle, some titan of industry will be one of his helpers. And you can see them sort of fall into this world that Armando has created. And maybe they'll be very judgmental and intellectual at the beginning, but by the end, they're just rocking back, surrendering themselves to this non-intellectual joy. And Armando will do that in 10 minutes. And you're thinking, wow, in 10 minutes, this guy's defenses uh, have evaporated. And the floor is open and he's in this, this you know, other universe created by Armando. And he's just laughing or smiling or just filled with whatever we call, you know, the experience of magic. And you realize, oh my God, this guy maybe has not felt this way since he was on a changing table and somebody, you know, <laughs> years ago was tickling his feet. And not only is magic unique in its ability to do that, it does it with enormous efficiency. Hmm. And I mean, maybe a singer can do it with that kind of efficiency, but very few performing arts can do it with enormous efficiency with so little time goes by. So I'm attracted to that in magic. Uh, I'm not, I mean, 
I think some people love to go, hey, fool you. Yeah, I want to fool them. But what I really want to do is, when I'm having a good day, make people, you know, uh, just fall into it the way, uh, you know, a good magician can, can, can achieve. So on my good days, I think I achieve that. On my not good days, I don't. And uh, that's sort of where I'm at. I'm the guy, I'm the kid coming down the stairs, seeing if I can, you know, change this group of people for the better. That's, yeah, seriously, thank you, man. That's, um, I know you called us out earlier on uh, really? trying to be overly enthusiastic or, or whatever um, our, our British uh, tendencies, but that is <laughs> genuinely a, one of the best answers I've, I've heard to that question. Um, not that it's competition, but that, I'll yeah. have to think about that for a while. Um, <laughs> and, and I'm sure people at home can as well. So, yeah, seriously, thank you, man. Um, uh, Jacob, do you have anything you, you want to add or, or shall we, shall we wrap this? No, I think I think that's a perfect place to end. It. I, don't, I don't think there's much to add to that. Uh, only if David, we, we like to offer the opportunity to our to our guests to speak to people and ask. You know, if, if you want, what sort of people do you want to reach out to you? Where can people reach you if they have more questions? Uh, well, I'm very easy to reach. Uh, I'm on Facebook, but also David at DavidRegal.com. Very easy to reach. There's a contact button on my you know uh, magic website regalmagic.com also davidregal.com is the same place hmm. okay well perfect well i think that's been a great one i'll, I'll try and close this out on put some more emotion to my voice than i did when i was when i was enjoying it this right. is, Give me a hard time. Yeah. <laughs> this has been a been a really great one thank you so much david for for taking the time to come on and, and speak with us and uh, i think we've all learned a lot and uh, i think with that we'll uh, we'll see everyone next time okay Cheers. so